If you would, please turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. And as we begin, I'd like to draw a little attention to the matchless authority of Christ that we have seen that we'll continue to observe. Uh, We've seen it for two chapters now. After declaring himself to Nazareth as the Lord's anointed, we see in chapter 4, verse 32, the people in Capernaum were amazed at Jesus' authority over both illnesses and unclean spirits. Then in chapter 5, he, he filled the men's nets with the fish as he demonstrated his authority over the created order. He shows authority over spiritual defilement as he cleansed the leper. And then told him, go and show yourself to the priest, that you might be ceremonially restored to Israel. And then last week, Jesus exercised his authority to forgive sins through the paralytic, through healing of the paralytic. Jesus has authority. Today, with authority, he calls Levi to follow him. Then next week, he declares authority to establish a new covenant. Then after Christmas, we'll see he has the authority even over the Sabbath itself, ceremonial things. Over that, Jesus has authority. And then we'll see him exercise authority, calling the twelve disciples who would later, eleven of them, become apostles. And later, even in chapter 9, we'll see him delegate his authority to the twelve and then to the seventy. Jesus is a man with full authority. And now we see how his authority is is bringing Jesus into conflict. We've been noticing that over the past few verses. He's now becoming, uh, or coming into conflict with the religious establishment. You know, folks, they were the ones who were used to being in authority. They were used to exercising authority. And and they're going to begin to view Christ now as a threat because he, he doesn't bow to their authority. He doesn't, uh, doesn't testify to their authority. And the escalation of that tension, it's going to be crystal clear in the next few verses as we look at them this week and next week. Remember last week, Jesus declared uh, forgiveness of sins. And the Pharisees reasoned amongst themselves. And Jesus exposed them, as Matthew insists, uh, for the evil they're devising in their heart. The Pharisees were reasoning amongst themselves at that point. And there are two types of people. There are those who submit to God's authority, those who rebel against it. And in Luke chapter 5, verse 26, the Pharisees acknowledged they had seen remarkable things, wonderful things, but that doesn't result in them submitting to Jesus' authority. Rather, it results in them challenging Jesus' authority, as we'll see. And today we'll notice the Pharisees are growing bolder. They're going to up the ante a bit today. And as I begin reading in Luke 5, verse 27, our passage continues just now after the healing of the paralytic. It says, After that, Jesus went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi. This would be Matthew. Levi was sitting in the tax booth and he said to him, Follow me. And Levi left everything behind and got up and began to follow Jesus. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. 
The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the calling of Levi. As I said later, I will know him as Matthew. He becomes one of Jesus' disciples. He is the author, uh, the human writer that is uh, of the gospel of Matthew. Being a tax collector was one of the most despised occupations in all of Israel. A historian uh, that I read named M.H. Shepherd writes, The publicans were classed by the people with harlots, usurers, gamblers, thieves, and dishonest herdsmen who lived hard, lawless lives. They were just licensed robbers and beasts in human shape. Or that's how they are viewed, beasts in human form. He continues, according to rabbinism or rabbinic thought, there was no hope for a man like Levi. How would you like to have a religion like that? Where there is no hope. There was no hope for a man like Levi Shepherd writes. He was excluded from all religious fellowship. His money was considered tainted and defiled uh, anyone who accepted it. It defiled the person. He could not serve as a witness. The rabbis had no word of help for the publican because they expected him by external conformity of the law to be justified before God. Just like our Pharisee that we read from the Scripture reading. Dwight Pentecost writes this, Because of his position, Levi was considered unclean and unfit to fellowship in Jewish society. Yet Christ commanded him, follow me. The righteous Jews of the community would, have not, would not have responded to an invitation to come to the house of a tax collector, so the banquet was filled with fellow tax collectors and others who fell into the category of sinners. Jesus did not draw back from association with such people, Pentecost writes. Folks, as we look at this, we should ask the question, how often do we find ourselves behaving in a similar manner of the Pharisees? How often do we make that mistake? You might hear people argue, you know, well, Levi, he'd already left everything behind in order to follow Jesus, so it was okay that Jesus uh, could fellowship with him. Levi didn't leave everything behind. Didn't leave everything behind in order to follow Jesus. He didn't leave his friends behind. He threw a, a huge reception for Jesus. He invited his friends to meet Jesus. Levi invited his co workers, other tax collectors, other friends. He gave a grand banquet so as to sit at a table with Jesus. How good would that be? Sometimes we take the concept, you know, of that call to leave everything behind. Sometimes we take it a little bit too far. Levi still owned his home. He obviously had significant resources to allow him uh, to throw such a large banquet. Peter still owned his boat. 
They both still owned a house. Uh, The disciples took care of their domestic affairs. Uh, They took care of their wives and their families. To do do not would be to dishonor uh, the Lord, would be to disobey Scripture. Many apostles even took their believing uh, wives along with them after the day of Pentecost as they traveled. So when you leave everything uh, to follow Christ, it doesn't necessarily suggests that every one of us is to liquidate all of our assets and get rid of all of our possessions uh, in order to follow Him, give the money away to the church or to some other important uh, work of the Lord, and then live as a monk. Anybody ever question that? What we leave behind when we follow Jesus is our sinful way of life. That's when we follow Him. For some people, that would include a sinful occupation. There are such out there. Uh, But here we see Levi uses his resources, that which he had in his possession at the time, to to draw friends and co-workers to Christ through a great banquet. Do you remember back in chapter 3, verse 12, what John the Baptist told the tax collectors? We studied that a couple months ago. As they came to uh, John the Baptist asking asking him, what should we do? It says, some tax collectors also came to be baptized. They said to him, meaning John the Baptist, Teacher, what shall we do? John told them, well, quit your careers and become a monk. No. No, he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Don't cheat. John the Baptist didn't insist that they leave their occupations, but to reform their occupations. The same was said, uh, precisely the same advice to the soldiers. Reform your occupation from within. So to become a follower of Christ, you don't have to leave your families and your homes and your careers behind. To do so actually, for most people to do that, would actually be wildly irresponsible. It wouldn't put you in a good position for most people. For the rich young ruler who we hear about so often, uh, who Jesus actually did say to give it all away, sell everything you own, give it to the poor, that wasn't provided to all Christians as a model for each of us. What Jesus was doing with him was exposing uh, the rich young ruler's love of his money. He was poking on a hot spot with that man. There's no call for every Christian to sell everything they own and leave it all behind. Anybody here own a house or a car? How could you reconcile that uh, to any such theology? But when Jesus says, follow me, he's saying you have to leave your sinful life behind, your sin-filled past behind, and turn and follow him. That's a picture of repentance, a turning from your former way of life and a turning to Jesus Christ to follow Him. Open, unrepentant sin, that's not permitted. Uh, Professing Christians. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Paul provides the church with clear instructions on that, uh, saying, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. 
or with covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world, Paul writes. See, Levi got this part right. We were at a Christmas party last night, Rita and I, for her office. Provides a good illustration for this. And, and uh, none of the people that were in, ten, in attendance there, a number of people uh, that I'm aware of, I don't know what any of them were Christians. It was a, a party given by her boss, a very generous a party at a very nice restaurant. A lot of people there from different backgrounds. There was some extracurricular drinking going on. Not by us. But they were having at some points a little bit too much fun. But we, we graciously accepted uh, the offer, the very generous offer from her boss and, and got to know those people and got to invite one gentleman in particular who was a little bit lightheaded, I think, by the end of the night, invited him to Christmas service. Is he going to come? I don't know. I don't know. But, but can we just disassociate with the world and win anybody to Christ? No, Paul says. How could you possibly do that? You'd have to go out of the world to disassociate with sinners who don't know the Lord. And Paul continues, he says, But actually I wrote to you, not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person, uh, immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, Paul writes, do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges. Then he says to remove the wicked man from among yourself. That was He's writing in response to a man who had a, an openly wicked lifestyle. Paul says you need to remove yourself from that leaven. Doesn't mean you can remove yourself from the world. Just have to be cautious with the world. So Christians and non-Christians, they do get treated a little bit differently. Those who have noticeably immoral issues, we judge them. Those outside the church, they're our mission field. Scripture says God judges them. We're to be witnesses to them. That's why there's one of the reasons that we use a membership covenant here. Just kind of off the cuff. Those who become members, they they look at the covenant and they, they look at different behaviors and they understand that if they vary outside of certain parameters, uh, we'd like to discuss that with them politely. And see where that all is going. It's just a caution. Visitors could come in. My, our friend, our new friend from last night that we met, he could come in and learn about Jesus. We want him to hear about Jesus and others. We want them to come to a point where they, like Levi, leave it all behind and follow him. Every, every group, every audience that we speak to is always a mixed group. There are people who are wholly committed to Christ. There are people who are considering Christ, thinking about Christ. There are people that are just curious. It's always a mixed group. We're always preaching the Word of God because that won't return void, no matter who the ears, uh, on whose ears it falls. Um, the point is here, we have to associate with sinners in order to introduce them uh, to Christ, to win them to Christ. At the same time, we don't want uh, any activities that aren't godly to cro- croach into our life, 
creep into our life. Uh, Levi's on track. Levi's on track. Uh, while the self-righteous Pharisees, in contrast to that, they had it completely wrong. Completely wrong. They wouldn't be caught dead associating with sinners. Tax collectors especially. Well, how would you ever win anybody to Christ if the church behaved that way today? You couldn't. In the larger context of the Gospels, we learn Levi does leave his occupation because Jesus called him to do so and calling him into full-time ministry. It's more likely, folks, in your case, more likely God is going to call you to remain in your occupation and reform it through godly living. That's more likely. I I was reading a commentary uh, earlier this week by John Calvin, the reformer, where he suggests it was necessary for Levi to leave his occupation of sitting in the tax booth uh, because of the nature of his work. Personally, I don't get that impression from John the Baptist. I don't get that impression from Jesus when he went to meet with Zacchaeus. And, and, and to talk with them. I don't get that impression that they would have to necessarily leave. Some occupations would require that. Certain types of entertainment would require that. But if Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus could remain as an honest tax collector, someone who, who was, was treating people appropriately, reforming his ways, he would have greater exposure to the public, greater exposure to to the unsaved than most pastors do. You have an opportunity in your environment, in your work environment, that Pastor Weiler and I don't. Interacting with people all the time. So I would disagree with Calvin on that. The banquet... That Levi throws for Jesus, it's ginormous. This is a big, the, the Greek suggests it was a big reception. Levi must have been a man of considerable wealth in order to entertain that many people. Matthew 9, uh, verse 9, speaking to the same event, says that many tax collectors came and, and other sinners were dining with Jesus. And then you throw in his disciples and others. Uh, in Brazil, there's a saying among the poor, uh, he who throws a party is he who can. You know, got the resources to do it. So Levi here threw a big party. It was a feast of sinners who end up celebrating Jesus. Celebrating the person of Jesus. The reception was for Jesus. He was the guest of honor. Christ was the guest of honor. There was merriment, there was rejoicing, probably singing. In contrast, Pharisees wouldn't join. Pharisees would not join uh, the company of sinners. They were not interested in a feast that would honor Jesus. What a striking image. What a striking image of, of the tax collector and, and the Pharisee at the temple that we read earlier. What a reflection. What a reflection. What an image of the eschatological, that's the end times marriage feast that believers are promised, all Christians will enjoy. In Matthew 22, Jesus described it. 
by saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who'd been invited to the wedding feast. Those who'd been invited. And they were unwilling to come. Unwilling to come. In Luke chapter 14, we see those invited to the feast. We've been talking about this. Israel, as Christ offers them the kingdom of God, Israel makes up all kinds of excuses. The religious elite make all kinds of excuses for not accepting such an invitation. So in the story of Matthew 22, we know that the master, he sends out his servants then to the highways and to the byways. They search through the hedges looking for people who are poor and crippled and lame. He said, bring them in. Bring them into the feast. The Pharisees, they they couldn't stand the fact that Jesus was reclining at Levi's house. Uh, He was reclining with those unwanted by society not seen as valuable to society. Jesus even seems to enjoy sharing their company. And their sound of laughter, their sound of joy, it's a scene of sinners dining with Christ. And that disturbed the Pharisees. Folks, it just eats up legalists to see sinners enjoying their Savior. Loving their Savior, singing praises and rejoicing in Christ. They object to seeing people uh, uh, genuinely happy. Christians are genuinely happy people. We rejoice in song and praise and in the birth of Christ. Pharisees weren't that way. They mount would be just a, just a most insidious attack here. I don't know if you've seen it yet reading it. To undermine all this group who's rejoicing together in Christ. They don't want to celebrate the grace of liberty found in Christ. They don't want to see anybody else enjoying Jesus either. So here we, we see that they seize an opportunity to sow discord. That's what their attempt is. And we don't know if this occurs outside of Levi's front door. We don't know what his front yard or corridor looked like. If there was a half wall, if there was any kind of iron gate, we we just aren't told that. Uh, We don't know if it's such a large gathering that that some of the people overflowed outside or or how this, this encounter came about. We don't know for sure. It doesn't matter. But in verse 30, there was grumbling that emerged. Grumbling. It says, uh, the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples. They're saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Notice, they approach the disciples. And and Matthew 9 exposes their motive as, as even more sinister. As the Pharisees ask them, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? You get that? They're they're trying to find fault in Jesus. They're trying to find fault in what Jesus is permitting. The banquet with sinners. 
How could he, how could your teacher eat with sinners? They're trying to instigate a revolt, a rebellion against the teacher. Amongst Jesus' disciples, they're wanting to stir up discontent. Remember, over in Matthew 9, we've seen previously how Jesus had seen. He had seen their heart and that there was evil in their hearts. They're questioning it wasn't just innocently naive. There was, there was intent behind it. There was sinister intent. They weren't just wondering. You know, sometimes you just I just kind of wondering. No, that's not it. It's accusative. And we can see the advancement of the aggression in this chapter by the Pharisees. First, at the healing of the paralytic, we're told that they reasoned amongst themselves and in their hearts. Didn't confront anyone. Jesus could see their hearts, so he responded to them. But first, uh, they didn't openly challenge Jesus. They reasoned in their hearts. They reasoned amongst themselves. Here today, they, they still don't confront Jesus or approach Jesus face to face. They accost his disciples. They go to them instead of Jesus. And when this attempt doesn't work, we will see it gets even worse next week where we'll see that instead of approaching Jesus personally, the Pharisees incite the disciples of John to approach Jesus and his disciples. Yet each time the Pharisees and the scribes are represented as the instigators, the troublemakers behind the confrontation. Uh, They're trying to sow doubt and discord in the people's eyes and cause quarreling in and amongst Jesus' followers. They're like the wolves who are trying to tear at and scatter uh, the flock of God, Christ's flock. On this occasion, either Jesus is within earshot, possibly, or, or a disciple just goes to him briefly and calls him out to answer. We don't know. Regardless, this same group of Pharisees attempts to, to disrupt and disturb the fellowship of, of Christ's people. They do it through grumblings. The basic meaning of the Greek word uh, it means to express dissatisfaction. It means to, uh, to uh, express displeasure. There's an attitude behind it. Jude uses the same uh, form of this same word to describe the gumblers who uh, in Jude 1 verse 11 are constantly trying to find fault. The English Standard Version calls them malcontents. That's how they're described. And they actually, by the time of Jude, had assimilated into the church. They'd become what he describes as hidden reefs in their love feasts. You've heard that verse before. Scripture says that God hates grumblers. He hates grumbling. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, many of you know that's called the Septuagint. It uses the same Greek word to describe those people who murmured and grumbled against Moses. Numbers chapter 16. You remember the story. It's the rebellion of Korah, the sons of Korah, of whom 1 Corinthians 10.10 says they were destroyed by the destroyer. And here they grumble against another prophet like Moses, another priest like Aaron. Now it is the Christ Did they actually want to know 
why Jesus joined the banquet of sinners. When they asked the disciples in Matthew 9, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Was their principal motive to learn why? No. It wasn't their principal motive. Their motive was to stir discontent amongst the followers. How do we know? Jesus was there. Why didn't they just walk up and ask Jesus? Be that simple. Just walk up and ask. Folks, whenever you run into this in the church, it happens from time to time. Every church. Why does such and such do such and such? Or, or why does this pastor want us to do this or to try that or do this, that, or the other thing? Or, or why do our teachers uh, invite us to do that or the other thing? Um, usually people already know why. Usually they already know why. Um, just go up and ask them. Just go up and politely ask them. Pharisees didn't want to do that. Pharisees didn't want that confrontation with Jesus. They already knew the answer probably. So if you you ever get to the point where you want to know why Tim mows the lawn north and south instead of east and west, go ask Tim. I think it looks great. We all get the point. Philippians 2.14 tells the church, do all things without grumbling. Grumbling is like the Pharisees. But Jesus does come to them. He does provide an answer to them. He answers their question in verse 31. It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Pentecost had another quote in his book I was reading. went something like this. He goes, Jesus wasn't implying that they were righteous in God's eyes or God's sight, he's implying that they're righteous in their own sight. They weren't really righteous. As you already have probably sensed, Jesus' statement, it's dripping with sarcasm. The Pharisees and the scribes were the religious thespians. They were the actors of the day who thought they were in perfect spiritual health. Perfect act. We saw it clearly in our earlier scripture reading where Jesus told this parable in Luke 18, verse 9. It says to some people who trusted in themselves that they were religious and viewed others with contempt, Jesus began saying, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So who is the one in this parable who trusted in themselves and who is the one who viewed the others with contempt? It was the Pharisee. It was the Pharisee. Pharisees saw themselves as righteous. They viewed everybody else with contempt. Everybody else. If you weren't just like them, they viewed you with contempt. Today, a Pharisee, folks, they could travel to 50 different churches and never find one that was good enough for them. Jesus said the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Pharisees acted outwardly religious. 
out where everybody could see it, but there was no inward transformation, no heart transformation. This is why Jesus says in the parable that the Pharisee stood praying with himself, to himself. That Pharisee references himself with the word I five times in just two sentences. I, 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 I. Remember that for next week as we go into the wineskins. We discuss the wineskins. The tenets of the law, they provided for a very visible outward expression of what should have been an inward transformation, a heart transformation. So for the Pharisees, the, the ceremonial, ceremonies, the, the ritualistic parts of the religion, sacrifices, giving, everything was an outward expression. They were ceremonies and rituals of the law. It become actually exclusively an outward expression. That's all it was. Christ through offering a new covenant, one that, it, that pro- is prophesied in the Old Testament of a heart transformation, a new covenant, it removes a lot of that outward religious expression because it's not a reliable indicator. We'll talk more about that next week. The Pharisees, they'd lost the scriptural emphasis on an inward transformation. So through a new covenant, Jesus removes the emphasis of an outward public expression. Removes the emphasis of it. Praying in public now, it's going to be in an inner room. Giving that used to be for blowing of horns and everything, now do it in private. That outward expression that that everybody loved in order to be seen is going to be changed. And that's what we'll discuss next week. Because uh, Jesus can't put new wine into those old wineskins. They, they, they don't function together. The wineskins will bust. Anyhow, the Pharisees here, they, they viewed themselves as spiritually healthy. They saw themselves as well. When, when you're feeling well, do you usually go to the doctor? Not Usually. I mean, sometimes you get a routine exam, but if you're feeling good, you're not going to be searching for a physician usually. You feel actually pretty good about your condition. Some who, someone who's spiritually well, they, they don't see the, a need for Dr. Jesus. I'm good. I'm good. T- take any form of, of works-based religion, which is any except Christianity, that relies upon a spiritual confidence in self, reliance upon self through, through uh, behavior, uh, take any one that fits the bill. It, it can be uh, Mormonism, it can be Zen Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, uh, whatever it may be. Ask any who hope, have hope in, see hope and righteousness within themselves somehow. They don't need a have any need for a doctor. I'm good. I'm covered. Don't worry about me. They, they might point the finger at someone else. They might say, well, I think maybe you might want to talk to that person over there. They might need to hear what you have to say, but not me. Not me. I'm good. When I do get a gospel tract refused, not very often, not very often, but, but when I do... And somebody says, uh, 
you know, nah, I'm good. That's a Pharisee. They've trusted in themselves. No, no, I'm, I'm good. I, I don't need that Jesus and forgiveness of sins. I'm, I'm good. I'm not sick. Because if it was a Christian and you were offering them the forgiveness and satisfaction in Jesus Christ, and they already know Jesus, they would say, thank you. Thank you for doing that. I should probably be doing more of that myself. But no, 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 I'm good. I'm covered. Uh, verse 32 says Jesus didn't come to call self-righteous. He didn't come to call them. He call, came to call the sick, those who know they are sinners, those who know they are sick, to repentance. Which one knows he's sick in Luke chapter 18? Tax collector. It says, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the right answer. The one who knows he's spiritually sick, he, even actually terminally ill, if you want to look at it in Scripture, terminally ill, uh, does he seek out a doctor? Oh, yeah. Yep. Help me, doc. Help me. I'm sick. That's the tax collector. He goes home justified by God's grace. It's the one who is convicted of his sins who knows he's actually spiritually sick. Scripture says the source of that conviction is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has given a ministry of conviction. John 16, verse 8, And He, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in Me, Jesus said. So the Holy Spirit must convict. When Paul and Silvanus and Timothy wrote to Thessalonica in chapter 1, he wrote, We give thanks. What do you give thanks for? Paul says why he gave thanks in verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you for our gospel did not come to you in word only. You know, there are some places you've probably been there where the gospel's just word. That's all the people look at is, is just some words. Paul says in Thessalonica, it didn't come just in words, but it also came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Full conviction of sins. When we go out witnessing, folks, we pray for an open door to the gospel. We pray for hearts to be opened as Lydia's was, that they might respond to the things speaking to us. We're praying for the Holy Spirit to convict them, ultimately regenerate them so that our words fall on fertile soil, that God might reap a wonderful harvest. Void of the Holy Spirit conviction. Void of that, uh, our message falls on, on deaf ears. No matter how eloquent you are, no matter how great of a speaker you are, that doesn't make a difference because God isn't going to share His glory with you. The Spirit has to be there and then hopefully we'll represent Him with the best words that we each can. That's all He needs is your best uh, effort to be obedient to Him. God goes to glory. The Pharisees' words, they, they condemn themselves here. They, they have no conviction. No conviction of sins. Uh, your teacher, he dines with sinners. Those guys over there, um, did they view themselves as sinners? 
No. No, they weren't sinners. They were righteous keepers of the law. Did they view themselves as sick? No. Why? Because they thought, they had been taught, over the centuries they had learned, that, that Judaism, Old Testament Judaism, they had been taught wrongly that it is an outward act of expression. And for that part of that outward act, they had it all together, the Pharisees. But it wasn't enough. You can't just have an act. Did the Pharisees believe the psalmist, King David, when he wrote, there's none good, not even one, there's none who seeks for God, and all are corrupt, Psalm 14.2? No. They didn't believe that. They had no conviction of their sins. Rita came in this morning, just as I was uh, wrapping this up, and uh, she was emotionally moved this morning. As Jerry Robertson was teaching about, about the conviction of sins and the, the need to confess those sins. To, to put your, your past in its place and move on to honor God. And we have a Bible life group that begins at 9.15. And Rita, Rita came back into my office and she goes, I just got to tell you, <laughs> Jerry just hit it. You got to confess that you're a sinner. We didn't. Didn't know about that ahead of time, what he was going to teach on. We even got asked last week as well. We're talking here about conviction of sins and, and those who see themselves as a sinner and the, the need to confess. And even last week, Rita was approached by someone. She's working nursery. And uh, they, they came into the nursery excited. Jerry, uh, Gerald had just taught Bible Life Group last week. And, and the fellow told Rita, did you hear that? She's like, no, I didn't hear it. She was busy with the kids. It's like... Matches up just with last week from different angles, but matches up uh, almost exactly what I was teaching, what Gerald was teaching today, what I'm teaching, what Jerry Robertson is teaching, folks. We're teaching the Word of God. It will complement itself. If you're being faithful to the Word, it's going to overlap and it's going to enforce itself because it is the Word that has the authority. Jerry, thank you for being faithful with that others who've taught him there as well. Nathan does a wonderful job, as does Gerald. In Scripture, it isn't the one who's grieving and confessing and sorrowful over his sin, prompted by the Holy Spirit, of course, uh, seeking God for mercy. He's not the one who's in trouble. She's not the one who's in trouble. It is the legalist that sees himself or herself as righteous in himself or herself and looks on everyone else with contempt that is in trouble. Don't be that person. For those of us here who have been and are convicted, we are sinners. Not just because we feel sorry, because we got caught with something, but convicted that we are truly sinners, that we've offended a righteous God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful, beautiful work of the Holy Spirit. Christ, if, uh, if they are at that point, Christ is calling you to repentance. He's calling you to turn from your past and put your faith in Christ. He is the great physician that can heal. He is the one that can heal your spiritual brokenness and sickness. If the idea that you're a sinner, that you've offended God, if that's offensive to you, um, that you feel you have lived a pretty good life, 
I've got my act together, you might say. God has no right to judge me. I'm good. I've either attended the right kind of church or practiced uh, what I feel is a superior form of religion. Uh, Maybe you think God's really impressed or owes you because you've sponsored a child across the globe. Whatever that might be, if you're finding righteousness in yourself, remember, even the Pharisees thought that they were serving God, but they weren't. They were serving themselves. They were spiritual imposters. They're actors. So it doesn't matter what you and I have done. What matters is our heart and where we find our righteousness that it only be in Christ. If you see yourself as a sinner, you've never really thought this through, the idea of forgiveness, of salvation, the righteousness of God being earned by the sinful, sinless life of Christ, not by our sinfulness. If that idea that Christ has lived a perfectly obedient life to God the Father and, and that He provides that to us as a free gift, if you like that idea, that He bore our sins in His body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness, for by His wounds we are healed, if that's something that sounds good, sounds good to you, you're in the right place. It's a sweet, sweet sound to your ear. That's not our closing song, is it, Gerald? No. If that's you, pull up a chair. Because Christ has invited you to the banquet to sit down and to dine with Him. Father, how glorious is Your salvation. How wonderful uh, is Your work, O Lord, to Send your Holy Spirit. Lord, as Scripture says, uh, the wind blows where he wishes. You can hear the sound of it. It means you see evidence of it. Lord, but you don't know where he's come from or where he's going. And Lord, we pray right here that you would send your Holy Spirit, Lord, to convict of sins. That you would uh, allow people, not only in our midst, Lord, but uh, here especially today, the ones in our midst and those that we speak to, The ones as we pass through our day and we see at the convenience store, the gas station, Lord, as we speak a kind word to them about Jesus, invite them to church, share a gospel tract with them, Lord, we pray that that news of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for them will be a sweet, sweet sound of their ears. Father, we're so grateful you've opened our hearts, that we've responded to that word, that it came with full conviction. And we're now alive to Christ, Lord, and we worship you and we glorify your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.